the data flow, not only here in the state of Florida, our original customer, but across the nation. All COVID-19 res test results, about over, over 1.3 billion test results have flowed from all of the laboratories and hospitals and pop-up you know, testing facilities through technology that we're responsible for securing and making sure that data is available to the CDC and the White House. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Eddie Gonzalez-Lumier, the CEO of Ruvos, a leading provider of healthcare IT services with worldwide impact. A Cuban-American born and raised in Miami, Eddie is passionate about being a voice for and empowering Latinos in technology-related fields. After graduating from Loyola University in New Orleans, he took a job in the Caribbean at an international private bank. While on the island, he met his wife Jessica and earned an MBA from the University of Miami by making a most unusual commute on the weekends. In 2008, the couple took a chance on Tallahassee in a new company called Uber Operations, which would later become Ruvos. As CEO, Eddie has overseen explosive growth, defined the company's culture, and has managed the significant role they are playing in the unexpected story of how COVID-19 has turned the healthcare world and the new mountains of data needing to be delivered securely upside down. And they do it all from right here in Northeast Tallahassee. We started our conversation talking about what it was like growing up in Miami. Miami was great. Um, I mean, it was just multicultural, uh, being, you know, exposed to different uh, folks from different countries, uh, different music, different food. Um, my parents did an amazing job uh, to set us up for success. In addition to my grandparents, I mean, my grandparents came in, in 1960 roughly with with not much um, and, and definitely didn't speak English. Um, uh, but Miami was outstanding. I think uh, being that hub, that international hub, especially to Latin America, uh, provided a bunch of opportunities to learn about different cultures. One of the cultures that I learned a lot about was um, Brazil. And so... Um, that influenced me going to Brazil um, while I was in college. I went to Brazil for about three months to learn Portuguese. And so always been interested in cultures and, and different backgrounds of people and, you know, where they came from and their story. And Miami created a great opportunity to do that. Sure. And so what about Brazil? You had neighbors or friends from that area? So I was, you know, I always kind of had an entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, I was doing research, speaking to my stepfather about, technology and, and some of the larger economies in the planet and you know, what are they doing with technology. And we, you know, based on our research, at that point, I think Brazil was the fifth, fifth largest economy on the planet. I, you know, I know English on Spanish and, and it was the third major language in this hemisphere. And they were doing some amazing things with technology. And so I, I said, well, let's, let's go to Brazil and learn Portuguese and meet a bunch of amazing folks. And that actually 
you know, gave me the excuse to start a, a kind of a company, a website development company where we would create websites in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. Um, so that was pretty exciting. But yeah, no, the, the culture, the people in Miami, um, you know, kind of gives you a taste of what other countries do, um, how they do things better, differently. And so Brazil was one of those experiences where I got to actually further deepen my knowledge and experience in that culture. So you said your parents were Cuban exiles? Yes. So my parents came over, um, you know, they were under, all of them were under the age of 10. Um, but, you know, due to the political situation in Cuba, uh, my grandparents, both sets of grandparents, decided in between 1959 and 1961 to to leave Cuba. So they, what most, what many Cubans would do is that they would send the children with an aunt or an uncle hmm. to the United States, whether it was Miami, Ohio, New Jersey, Orlando. In our case, it was Miami. And then, you know, the, my grandparents, for example, would kind of, you know, try to figure out what to do with their property, their land, sell it if they could. In many cases, unfortunately, the, the government kind of took over the property. And so around, you know, 19, early 1960s, they arrived in, in Miami. And, um, you know, based on the stories that I've heard, it was extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm always extremely grateful for what my grandparents and my parents did to set up myself and my, and my sisters um, to be able to, you know, do what we do today. Yeah. So it seems like that entre- entrepreneurial spirit you have makes sense when you see your parents, you know, and come in a situation where they're coming to this country with nothing and having to create something for themselves. Absolutely. From trying to figure out how you're going to put food on the table to um, going back to school, right? And, and maybe working in a job that you may not have done back in Cuba. Um, um, I had one grandfather who had a farm in Cuba and he had horses and, and cows and things of that nature. And he ended up working, I believe it was uh, Coca-Cola on, on, the, on the supply chain line. And, um, and he unfortunately passed away without learning English, um, but he was a tireless worker. Um, I had another grandfather who was an architect in Cuba. And when he, when he got to Miami, he kind of had to reinvent himself a bit and get back into the architecture scene and basically meet people from scratch. Um, I think one of the great things about Miami is that the community was extremely tight. You're, you know, the Cubans would be there to help each other out. Um, the folks that were already in Miami ahead of, you know, before the, the, the Cuban wave were very, you know, welcoming. And of course, the United States was extremely supportive during right. that time. Yeah. yeah. So what was it like growing up with five sisters? It was it was great. I love my sisters. Uh, Where are you in the order? I'm, I'm number one. So I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm number one, and okay. I love my sisters. Uh, they're that's a good way of saying the oldest too. Number one. That's I'm, a yeah, I'm, strong way to put that. I'm number one, and some people say Eddie, you were spoiled, maybe. Um, but uh, I definitely had to wait for the bathroom. Right? I had to, <laughs> you had to learn that. I had to yeah. learn that. Um, but no, it was great uh, growing up with with some amazing young ladies and they're doing some amazing things today. Um, you know, three of them are in edu education. Um, we have, uh, another sister of mine is an entrepreneur. Um, and another one is, is in technology and they're doing some amazing things. And, um, you know, often they say, Eddie, we look up to you maybe because I'm the oldest, but the reality is I, I look up to them and some of the things that they've been able to do as women, as leaders, um, as, as wonderful mothers. So I'm extremely proud. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, all right, so you talked about going to a Jesuit prep school. That's right. Was that all through all your school years? So it was, um, you know, part of middle school and high school. It was, it was. I will say, Dave, it was one of the, the most challenging things I ever experienced. I didn't want to go. It was an all all, all male school. Um, a lot of my friends were going to co-ed schools. You were in public school before that. I was in an, at an Episcopal school, okay. um, which was uh, which was a great school. But when I went to Belen Jesuit, it, I mean, it was extremely challenging. Um, it was a lot of hard work, and it wasn't just the books, Dave. It was also there's that expectation of doing things in the community, volunteering. Mm-hmm. We went on two uh, mission trips to the Dominican Republic. Which, you know, when I look back now, very grateful, but it wasn't easy for a 13-year-old, 14, 15-year-old. But to this day, my at 41, my close friends, we still talk every day, Hmm. right? Obviously using different types of technology. And the bonds and the experiences that we experienced in Miami in high school was outstanding. Um, I mean, they taught uh, about, you know, thinking of others, community. The Jesuit, Jesuits, you know, big into education, making right. sure folks have the opportunity to, you know, be educated and have, you know, everyone has a level playing field. Um, and I, I still remember this day. I think it was 10th grade and it was a biology exam and I was just super burnt out. And I remember coming home and, and you know, basically almost to a certain extent kind of giving up, right? I don't want to be at the school. It's extremely difficult. You know, you had to pull some all-nighters to, to study. And my parents said no. My parents said, no, you're gonna stick, you're gonna stick with this. You're going to we'll be we'll be here to support you, but you're gonna look back, Eddie, and realize that this is this is something that you know you're gonna be grateful for. And it's one of the best things that uh, I ever experienced, obviously one of the most challenging. And then that led me to looking for schools that also kind of continued that tradition. Yeah. In Loyola University, New Orleans. Right. So let's talk about that. So you finish, and it was tough, but you achieved it, and we're grateful for it looking back, right? Absolutely. And taught you – I know that you talk about now a focus on um, service and and giving back and finding ways to to make a difference, and I assume that that was born in those years. Absolutely. Um, Obviously, in in running a company, you know, we have a mission which is focused on public health, which is great. Um, and we're doing some amazing things that rules related to public health. But we're also creating, which I love, creating opportunities for our close to 80 employees. And people often ask, Eddie, how many employees do you have? And I said, well, we've got close to 80. But I always follow that up with it's actually 80 families. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, it's 45 children that are associated with that. And so to me, that's what really gets me gives me goosebumps is, yes, the work is awesome, but the fact that you can get people together, some of the most talented people together to work as a team, to provide opportunities for them, especially during a pandemic, is 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 an amazing feeling. And we kind of saw that in this Jesuit education where you work as teams, you always, you know, never leave anyone behind. If you see someone down, you help them. Doesn't matter what they look like, how they speak, does it, none of that matters. You're there for other people. And so when I make decisions nowadays in, in business, those are the things that I think about. Right. Those are the things that I think about. Well, for people who aren't familiar, tell us what a Jesuit school is. What does that mean? So there's the Jesuit order. Obviously, it's, it's Roman Catholic, um, and it follows Saint Ignatius. You know, their you know his his kind of guidance in terms of spirituality. Um, the our school in Miami actually was founded in Cuba. 
Mm. Okay. It was actually the school that Fidel Castro went to. Yeah. Okay. And actually they say he was one of the smartest people that walked those halls. Um, and so they, uh, when Fidel Castro took over, ironically enough, he kicked out all the priests and the Catholic church. So the Jesuits moved from Cuba, from Havana, Cuba to Miami and started okay. this and continued the education. So it's the school. actual school. It Absolutely. just moved. It just moved. Wow. That's it crazy. just moved. Yeah. Um, but really the, the Jesuits, um, you know, focused on, you know, volunteering, like I mentioned earlier, education, mm-hmm. Um, helping the needy, you know, and basically the selfness, selfless uh, type of perspective, um, which, you know, nowadays is hard to do with social media and everything that's going on in the world. But I go back to those days at Belen Jesuit and Loyola and remind myself of, you know, what I learned and what I experienced with 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 the different, uh, you know, the different priests and, of course, uh, my, my friends and colleagues. Yeah. Did you speak Spanish and English at the school? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, Spanish classes. Uh, my grandparents spoke Spanish. Uh, my parents, to a certain extent, would speak Spanish as well. Um, and and then when I um, I continued Spanish at, in in college, I also you know um, picked up Portuguese. Right. And then when I lived in Antigua and I was in international private banking, I had a great opportunity to travel Latin America, which was great for my Spanish. <laughs> um, <laughs> Immersion is important no was, matter what, right? It was great for yeah. my Spanish. Um, I need to I need to practice. But uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. definitely Spanish. Great. Okay. So let's talk about going to Loyola. That's in New Orleans. And it continued this same uh, worldview perspective on your education. That's what drew you there, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, there was a, a few reasons. Several of my friends from Belen Jesuit also went to Loyola. So we went as like kind of like a team. Right. Um, I love food. I love uh, culture. I love There's parties. certain advantages There's to New Orleans, There's great right? advantages. <laughs> I was there for five years, probably one year more than I should have been. Um, but, you know, there were some similarities to Miami. Mm. Different cultures and and different backgrounds. Spanish influence. Spanish influence, French influence. There's a tremendous amount of history. And and they also had some great scholarship programs, which, you know, we were able to take advantage of. And their business school was excellent. Um, They have a great, because of the port system, they have a great international business program. Many of the students that were in the program were from other countries, um, which, which I loved. Um, and it was, it was an amazing school. Actually, I had an alumni meeting last night, um, and it felt good just to reminisce about those days. It's been a while about those days and all the things that I learned and, you know, um, and absolutely I had a lot of fun and and some great memories. Yeah. So what did you study there? So I studied, um, finance and computer information systems. And that was really an important, I appreciate that question because, I, I knew I wanted to get into technology, and I also love business and creating opportunities for others and working as a team and taking an idea and, and you know, taking it to, to the market. But I wasn't sure, Dave, if I could code in terms of technology. Right. I, I, was, I wasn't the greatest at math. And so studying both, I realized, listen, I can, I can do some damage in computer science, but I'm not going to be a coder. Right. You and have to I, talk the talk, understand can, it to some degree. I know the, degree. the words, the, the, the different uh, acronyms. <laughs> right. I know what's challenging, what's easy, some of the new technology. And I still to this day love the technology. But I also realized my strength was more in business and in finance and, and presentation skills, um, you know, uh, financial statements, uh, statistics. And so that was great for me. And that's why I always recommend to folks that are interested in or trying to figure out what they want to study – you know, try to. You can always get a major and a minor or a double major, and try to, you know, 
taste the waters for, for different yeah. career opportunities. And by the way, you can always change. I always tell people it's not the end of the world if by sophomore, junior year, you decide you want to change your career path. That's okay. I went to college to be a band director. That's right. I did read about that. That's right. <laughs> so uh, you knew the general area, but you don't you don't know all the options coming out of high school, but you know you know what your interests are and what some of your skills are and then kind of let things happen from there, right? Explore a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so right after Loyola – the first opportunity I have was a project manager in business in a bank related to technology. So it was a it was a very very good fit, and it was in a foreign country. And so when I look back now, as you ask the question, as we talk about this, you know, coming from Miami, uh, you know, having friends from different cultures, multiple languages, yeah, I think that you know kind of set the stage for that you know great opportunity after Loyola. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go on to that. So. Um, you graduate in 2003, right? And then head to Antigua to work at Stanford International Private Bank. That's right. So tell me how that happened and what you did there. Okay, great. So um, I had a, a, a family member that um, had contacts at this international private bank in Antigua. And there was an opportunity for a project manager position. Um, once again, you know, there's a little, there's always a little bit of anxiety. You know, you're in college, you're having a great time, you know, you have to get a job, but it's not like I'm going to get a job in New Orleans or Miami. I had to go to another foreign country right. where I had never been there before. So um, I said yes. And of course, support, the support of my family was critical for that. And so I went to Antigua. I was there for, I think it was about five and a half to six years. And um, it was an amazing experience working in international private banking with high net worth individuals. So tell me, I'm sorry, tell me what that means. It sounds like a place where rich people put their money, they'd want to have it found. I mean, what, what is an international private bank? So great question. So, you know, different countries have different laws related to, to taxes. Um, some countries, um, you know, have uh, uh, organizations like Stanford International Bank where, you know, they potentially can give better interest rates for certificates of deposit. And so this bank focused on uh, Europeans and, and, and Latin Americans who, okay. you know, want, were looking for high interest rate vehicles. I mean, in some cases, uh, you know, with the turmoil that was happening in Latin or that is happening in Latin America, maybe they had reasons to get it out of their country, right, to mitigate some risk around around their 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 funds. And so, yes, we worked with what they call high net worth individuals, which means the technology, like your online banking, and this is back in 2003, right. everything has to be perfect. Right. I mean, everything has to work. And when you talk about things like, this is a little techie, like disaster recovery plans or business continuity plans. And remember, we're on an island. So one of my first jobs, Dave, was to figure out how to create a disaster recovery plan in the middle of in the Caribbean during hurricane season, the bank system had to be on 24-7. And so it was a big challenge, but we worked with some amazing folks and we were able to create a system that would never go down regardless of a tropical storm, a hurricane. So is there like an underwater pipe to a mainland or something? Or <laughs> That's a great question. So we basically would um, have these what they call dry run exercises in Toronto. Okay, so wow. IBM has a disaster, amazing facility, a disaster recovery facility. And so what we would do is we would, um, a couple times a year, we would basically fly a team to Toronto at this IBM facility and stand up the bank. 
the entire operation from the technology to the actual people that are doing the work uh, within 24 hours. We never had to initiate the disaster recovery plan or the business continuity plan, but it was great practice, something that to this day is extremely important, especially in public health. Yeah. So um, Antigua was amazing. I mean, there are, they say there are 365 beaches in Antigua, a beach per day. Um, Some of the nicest people I have ever met once again, a great opportunity for me to learn about another culture yeah. and also be able to help and create opportunities. Um, and the most important thing about Antigua is that I met my wife. Yeah. I met my wife, Jessica, there. Yeah, you? so that was my next question. I knew that the job was awesome, but the, the biggest win for you is meeting her there, I would I would assume, right? I, absolutely. <laughs> I met her there and her family. Um, so and, how did that happen? So it was a, a mutual friend who had, I think, a barbecue of some sort. Um, and I will say the first, uh, I guess, date, it was kind of a blind date, um, didn't go as well as I, I, I wanted it to, but you know, a week or two later, I guess she, so wait, I got to ask. So what happened? So we were, we were eating and we were eating, it was like plastic chairs and, and and a plastic table. And actually our friend is a chef. So the food was amazing. I was having a Diet Coke and, but my foot fell asleep. Okay. And right. So I, I said, I told my wife, Jessica, I said, hey, why don't we go and look at the ocean? Because we're literally on the water. And so as I got up, I fell. Okay. okay? A lot of people don't know this. So I actually fell under the table <laughs> on my first date. And I, <laughs> that, I, that, I, was, that, I was having Diet Coke. That, that, that's why the Diet Coke yeah, comment's important. Absolutely. Right? But I, it didn't, you know, a couple weeks later, she she followed up and we went on to our next date and the rest is history. You survived it. I survived the fall. <laughs> so did you get up and walk on the beach I after saw, you got I, up? I got up and I walked and she didn't follow for the first few minutes. I kind of was walking by myself and I didn't want to look back. And then right. eventually she came up and then we were just looking at the ocean and listening right. to the birds. It was nice. All right. So while you're there and I I guess you're married at this point, you, st- you start pursuing an MBA at University of Miami? So um, right before actually marriage, um, I – the, the whole business thing and entrepreneurial thing came back. I mean, I was working for a large organization. Even though Stanford, you know, you know had I think $8 billion in deposits and had offices all around the world, it was actually pretty entrepreneurial. And as I was working there, the ideas kept coming, right? A website that I can create, a service that I can create, partnering with some of my old friends from high school or college on, 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 a, on a random idea that came up one late night. And I said, well, let's, let's go back to school. Let's go back to school, not only for um, and, and focus on international business and entrepreneurship, but also to meet folks as well, right? So I had been on the island for you know four, you know three to four years, had some amazing friends there, but the reality is I was kind of disconnected from what was happening in the U.S. Right. So um, I decided to apply for uh, an executive MBA program at the University of Miami, and so for two years um, I would fly back from Antigua to Miami. So I. I think it was about a million miles flown. Wow. And how, how long does it take you to get back and forth? So great question. It was from Antigua to San Juan, Puerto Rico, about 45 minutes, and then about two hours from San Juan, Puerto Rico to Miami. So I did that for two years every weekend. Wow. The classes were on the weekends. But it was wonderful because I was able to meet people from all around Latin America who would do the same thing or had moved to Miami and were learning about, okay, what's that next thing that I'm going to do in my career? It was a working professionals program. So everyone kind of had a job. Um, And once again, the school was great, but the people that I met and the the network of professionals that I created 
was outstanding to this day. I'm in contact with many of them. Um, but that, that was a very hectic two years, and that was right before marriage. And my wife was extremely supportive, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah. That's awesome. That is uh, <laughs> that's a different kind of commute than most students. It was uh, it was it do. was a million it was, you know, and I don't recommend it. It was very challenging. Um you know, at first, the first few weekends, you know, you're you're flying like, around. And it's, it feels great. <laughs> look at this. But after a while, yeah. you know, TSA gets old. Becomes a grind. It right? really becomes a grind. Yeah. All right. So you finish your MBA. Yes. And you're still at the bank. Yes. And then a opportunity presents itself for you to come to Tallahassee. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so um, one of my sisters, Janine, married a gentleman named Jeff Couch, who graduated from FSU. My sister also went to FSU. Um, and... Um, my brother-in-law, Jeff, calls me and says, Eddie, we, you know, that company that we that we have here in Tallahassee that does some healthcare stuff, you know, I've talked to you about it before. I said, yeah, Jeff, what's going on? He says, well, we actually have new customers. And we're, we actually have to, like, set up a bank account. And we have to just do things that us techies really didn't have to do for the first few years, the first four years of, 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 of the company. And I said – all right, well, what can I do to help? He says, well, there's there's a few, uh, there's a there's a major project that we need your leadership and, and your project management skills with. And we also want to try to grow this company. And spoke to Jessica about it. It was right after we, we were married. And about what, two weeks later, we had a shipping container. It parked in front of our house in Antigua. We packed it up, including the dogs, the two pugs. And we headed to... Uh, Florida and we're headed to Tallahassee. And so that was in 2000, late 2008. Did you know anything about Tallahassee? So I did um, through my sisters who attended FSU, um, sports games. Um, obviously, I knew it was the capital of the 15th largest economy on the planet. Uh, I did have to tell Jessica that Tallahassee is not Miami because naturally you say you're going to Florida, Tallahassee. They're so where did she come from to get to Antigua? Where was so she? So she was born in New York, but at the age of okay. three or four, moved to Antigua, and okay. she knew of Florida, of course, and she knew of Miami, but that ain't you know, Tallahassee. It ain't Tallahassee, right? Um, and so once again, she, she extremely supportive, um, and I always share this with folks. I mean, it was a controlled risk, a strategic risk that we took, but it was still a risk, similar to some of the decisions. I think I made at a younger age, of course, with the backing and sometimes the push of my parents where, you know, traveling to Antigua, the country you've never been to, traveling by yourself to Brazil, country that I had never been to, um, sticking with, you know, the the high school, which was tough. And so I look back and I probably, you know, hated it or maybe disagree with my parents, but I'm very grateful for them pushing me. So when you have decisions as an older, as an adult – that are, you know, complex, that there's some risk associated with it. You know, I look back at those memories and say, you know what, it's, it, let's try it, you know? What's the worst that happens? And, well, the rest is history. It was one of the best decisions I made. <laughs> yeah. Listening to podcasts has become a way of life for millions of Americans. 55% of the U.S. population has listened to at least one podcast. Podcast listeners are more active on social media and are more likely to follow companies and brands. At Fiori Communications, we will first help you put together a plan to execute your vision, discussing concept, format, and all the details that make a great podcast come to life. We would love to have a conversation about whether a podcast is right for you. Contact us today to learn more.
All right. So you come to, it was Uber Ops at that time, right? It Uber, was. It right. was Uber Operations, right. short Uber Ops. Absolutely. It was in 2008. Tell me about you climbing the career ladder to where you are now as CEO. Obviously, you took some steps, learned different parts of the company. Tell me about that, that process. Great question. So folks often ask me, how did you transition from international private banking, finance to public health technology? And, I, and naturally, they're different, but they both work with some of the more modern technologies around. Um, security and privacy is relevant, extremely important for both of these industries. At the end of the day, you're moving data, hosting data, someone's personal data. In one case, it was someone's personal financial information, and in the other case, it's someone's protected health information. And so that that transition was was pretty smooth. I still had to learn a lot about healthcare and public health. So the first couple years, it was about going to conferences, reading as many blog posts as possible, meeting as many people as possible that are, you know, that were involved in public health and immersing myself in in just that culture, that language. Um, and so one of the great opportunities before running the company, I, I worked on projects. So I had the hands-on experience to, you know, have many lessons learned, some successful projects, some challenges, meeting people across the nation related to public health. Right. And that really set the tone for um, my experience in public health. And, you know, we we pride ourselves in, in delivering, right? And so working our tails off, being extremely clever and innovative. And naturally, it had happened. I mean, we, we, we did so well here in Florida. As I mentioned earlier, other organizations started calling and started saying, hey, those techies over there in, in Tallahassee, Florida, maybe they can help us track influenza across the nation. Mm -hmm. Or the state of Texas called and said, you know, those, those techies over there in Florida and Tallahassee, maybe they can help us set up the infrastructure. And so we started growing organically. We really never had a business development team per se. Okay. It was, it was our people just really delivering. You know, as we continued to grow and continue to, you know, polish our operations, um, I had the great opportunity to um, become a, a partner in the organization and then being named the, the CEO. Um, which, you know, comes with its own challenges, but amazing opportunities as well. And so an, a, a good and steady amount of growth up to January of 2020, which is another story I'm sure we'll right. talk about. Yes. So, yeah, so that growth, you started with five, then grew to, what, 40, 50 so at we, that point? We were at, um, right before the pandemic, we were at close to 40 people. Okay. And then a worldwide pandemic hits which affected everybody, but your company in a really unique way. Absolutely. January 20th, I was emailing with one of our customers. And I said, listen, we're hearing some chatter from overseas around this thing called COVID-19. And This is in January. January. Okay. January. And a few weeks later, the Florida Department of Health and the governor's office said, we need to ramp up. Okay. This was um, – this is around February. Okay. And so our team here in Florida that is responsible for all data coming in and out of the Department of Health, the agency, doubled in size. So we had to ramp up. We had to figure out as a company, how are you going to recruit talented people that can help from day one? Um, and it was a challenge, but we were able to figure it out, that, that first wave. Mm -hmm. Then around March, um, the federal government started getting involved more. Right. And the fact that we were 
or we are the ones that are moving influenza data, flu data for the United States, the federal government was pretty smart about it. They said, you know, let's piggyback off, off of that highway system that Ruvos and its partners created, and let's use that to track COVID-19 data. And so we are very grateful for all of the work that we've been involved in over the last year and a half. But I also tell people it's been extremely difficult and challenging because, I mean, it was just it's long nights to this day. It's extremely long nights, making sure the data gets to the appropriate people at the right time. And so over the last year and a half, we hired 40 people. Doubled in size. We have doubled in size over the last uh, year and a half. So taking everything else out of it, how do you manage that, doubling a company in a year and a half? So great question. We the, – the initial surge, your current staff has a lot of adrenaline pumping. Number one, we're in a great industry. We're extremely busy. We're all very grateful. We're helping the communities we serve. But after a while, that takes a toll. Right? You have the whole burnout situation, which is, you know, as you probably can tell, we care a lot about our folks, and we didn't want that to happen. And so um, we had to learn how to recruit. And we have some amazing people. We have a, a lady named Jenny and a gentleman named Andrew who basically learned, and, and Jenny had experience from the past, but learned how to get out there and tell our story to recruit some of the most talented people on the planet to help us. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds of interviews, probably a thousand resumes. In the beginning, it was I think it was challenging. Um, it's still difficult. But I think the fact that people realize that public health is a great opportunity to use your skills to improve something that would help millions of people across the planet. There are actually people that are saying, you know what? Silicon Valley is great, but I want to get into public health. Banking is great, but I want to get into public health. Or manufacturing is wonderful, but I want to get into public health. I think that helps as well. Yeah. But having to articulate our culture, why we're in Tallahassee, yeah. how did we start, um, was was a lot of work. And, and also, as I mentioned earlier, we're not only hiring a Dave for a position – Dave's spouse or partner, Dave's family. So we want to make sure that if you're working at Ruvos, it's a good fit not only for Ruvos and its customers, but also for Dave. Right. At the same time, being pounded with more and more requests from your clients and needs and Dave, everything it is wants. It is nonstop. And so like I alluded to earlier, we're managing the data flow not only here in the state of Florida, our original customer, but across the nation. All COVID-19 res test results, about over, over 1.3 billion test results have flowed from all of the laboratories and hospitals and pop-up, you know, testing facilities through technology that we're responsible for securing and making sure that data is available to the CDC and the White House. We've had to work with two administrations. Um, we've had to work with new folks at the CDC who, are, who have been extremely supportive. Um, and oftentimes we have to turn off the news uh, because of the different things you read about. And we, we try to remind our team, focus on making sure the data is secure mm -hmm. and making sure the data gets from point A to point B so people can make some life, you know, changing decisions. Ultimately, that can save people's lives. Right. That's pretty cool that all that national stuff – there, there's always been a thing about Tallahassee that people love to tell stories that you don't really understand the impact companies in Tallahassee are making nationally and worldwide. 
And, and this is a great example of that. It, it is, and we're extremely proud. I mean, one of the things that we like to say when we start off a conference call is this is Eddie from Ruvels in Tallahassee because we're extremely proud of being here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we started here. We're not going anywhere. Um, and we're proud that we're able to not only help the local community and our state, but we're helping folks really across across the nation, which, which like I said, it's a lot of hard work, but it, it you know, it does help when you have those sleepless nights and high pressure situations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Switching gears a little bit. Um, I've heard you speak before that, um, representing Latinos in technology is important to you. Are Hispanics underrepresented in tech overall? Great question. And timely question as we're in Hispanic Heritage Month right now from September 15th to the middle of October. Absolutely. I I think, um, you know, one of the things that we've realized in healthcare and in public health, the ultimate customer are the patients. And as the demographic changes from a patient perspective, I think right now the, you know, uh, children, uh, Hispanics represent 25% of the children, for example, across mm-hmm. the United Nations, and that's growing. Here in the Big, Big Bend region, we're, we're close to probably 10%, and that's growing as well. And so being able to understand those cultures, some of the challenges or experience are extremely important. And that's one of the things I'm really happy about with Ruvos during this hiring surge is the diversity, the diversity that we have. I mean, we have folks from all types of backgrounds, uh, which we're extremely proud of. And, you know, they, it kind of happened naturally. You know, we didn't we didn't, didn't have a diversity program. We or did not. Right? And we read a lot about it and we, we want to continue learning more about that. But it, when I look back and I think about it. It happened naturally. Hmm. Actually, one of the things we did this year, we opened up an office in South Africa. Wow. Okay. So we actually we have six people right now. Um, soon it'll be seven folks in South Africa that help us with um, our plans to do more international public health. And so learning about just different cultures and, and being able to relate to this fast-growing uh, world that we live in is extremely important. Um, and so that's something that we try to keep an eye on, whether it's a situation with uh, what we're seeing at the border um, or what's happening with, with you know, with Haiti, for example. Those are things that we're, we try to, you know, stay up to date on, which are really important because ultimately our customers are those people. Right. Are those people. Yeah. All right. So in addition to all the responsibility and time of um, running your company and growing and it's during this time, you also enjoy teaching, right? And over time, over the last many years, you have been an adjunct at FAMU and at Emory in Atlanta, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love to, um, I, I say, learn from the students. Um, the Both institutions have provided opportunities where I can really share our story of what we do at Ruvos and what the nation does when it comes to public health. A lot of people don't know all the hard work that goes into it. Um, and so having opportunities here locally at FAMU and, of course, at Emory's Rollins School of Public Health has been wonderful. Um, I've been able to meet some amazing people, uh, been able to, to a certain extent, give back to the community. And actually, it's a great way, Dave, to recruit folks. Yes, I bet. So we have been uh, – we've got folks from that were students of mine at FAMU and students of mine at Emory that, as you and I are speaking, are working at, at Ruvos. That's so awesome. it's it's it just shows you the importance of having a professional network, keeping up with people, um, you know, following up with folks, um, learning about their backgrounds. Um, you know, obviously it takes work, but uh, yeah, lo- love to teach and hope to do it again soon. Yeah. 
Well, the company may have been under the radar at some point um, for all that you're accomplishing, but you have been recognized a lot over the years and have won many awards and serve on many organizations. Too many to list in our time here, but just wanted to ask if any of them really stand out to you or are particularly meaningful to you, both either in service or in some recognition you've received. I think my experience with organizations like um, the Early Learning Coalition or other organizations like Flacey and, and Domi and that are focused on helping uh, younger folks, to me, zero to five is extremely important. Really for everyone, it should be extremely important. Um, I, I was talking to um, a group a couple weeks ago, and someone said, "Well, we need to invest in, in high school students because they're, you know, they're about to go into the workforce." I said, "We the most important time for a child is zero to five in terms of brain development." Right. And um, but by the way, a five year old ten years later is working. So before you know it, that individual who's five years old and driving and driving, which is scary. <laughs> right. And so I think you know being able to help um, in the education space, and then you know how can technology help early education? Um, how does public health and early education kind of work together? Right. And so participating in organizations like that. Uh, really mean a lot to me. And once again, there are opportunities for me to learn and then go back to my professional network and share some of that information. Someone once asked me, Eddie, you're not in, pu you're not in early education. You're in public health. Why are you involved in all these early education initiatives? I said, well, there are many reasons. And one of them is, remember, there are 45 children that are associated with Rubils. Mm -hmm. People often say, how many employees do you have, Dave? And um, they should actually be asking, in addition to that question, how many children or how many families are associated with Rubio. So I have a responsibility to learn as much as I can and to help the community because in turn it helps folks that are part of, of, of my life. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've talked about your wife, Jessica, mm -hmm. and how awesome she is, but I also don't want to leave out your children. So I want to have an opportunity to, for you to tell us about, about your two kids. They're amazing. Um, Raquel, who just turned 11 years old, uh, an amazing student, um, an amazing dancer, a great tennis player as well. Wow. Um, and, and then my, our son, Meyer, um, named after Meyer is actually my, my, um, my wife's maiden name. Okay. So she was Jessica Meyer. And an, a, an amazing student, a great tennis player, great artist, an amazing personality. We're extremely lucky. I mean, they're, they are, they're our lives. I mean, they're just, they're just wonderful kids. Yeah. Wonderful kids. And I've, you know, I've heard some of the, you know, podcasts you've been on and things you've spoken about, and I know how important your family is to you. And, uh, just wanted to ask you how with the success and the incredible, um, the time requirements of running your business and being innovative and speaking and doing all the things that you do in the community, how you achieve a life balance that you're happy with prior, still having that priority on your family. I mean, it's what everybody deals with, but especially in high stress, high demand careers, just curious how you sort your life out to make that work for you. That's one of the biggest challenges I experience is how to be um, a good husband, a supportive husband. Uh, and a, a good father uh, and a role model of the children and also to try to help an, an amazing group of people at Ruvils and the other organizations that I'm involved in. What often happens with me and it's my challenge is that something gets cannibalized and often it's me. 
right? In terms of, um, you know, uh, health and fitness, that's something that I'm continually, you know, battling with and making sure that I make time to maybe put the oxygen mask on myself before right. someone else. Um, you know, I, I tell myself, I often remind myself that that has to be a priority. And that's something that I'm continuously trying to improve. And also at the same time, being able to perform at a high level um, and being able to get up really early in the morning and, you know, you know, help with breakfast, go to the gym, make sure everyone's ready for school and then show up at work and try to be the best leader that I possibly can. And it's probably the biggest challenge that I, I experience. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've read a lot of books. Uh, so if you have any other recommendations, send them my way. Right. <laughs> No, it's tough. I mean, there are 24 hours and when you cheat yourself, you cheat sleep or eating right or any exercise. Yeah. You're just, you're going to, it's going to crash at some point. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Every once in a while, it's important to, to try to get away with the family and kind of reset and disconnect. And that's one of the things I think we've done a very good job at over the last year and a half at Ruvos is that we've hired some amazing people and leaders that can run the show or run the project and people can then go on vacation. Right. People can then take, you know, some PTO. And whereas when we were smaller, that was a lot more challenging. For sure. To the point that we just implemented unlimited PTO time off for our staff about two weeks ago. Uh, so explain how unlimited PTO works. So number one, we make sure we force folks in our policy that they have to take at least 10 days a year. Right. Because what we've seen in the studies, and we did a lot of research, is that people with unlimited PTO, guess what? They don't take time off. Right. Because okay, so we want to make sure people are allowed to reset. But we also know things happen in life, especially during these days. Um, and so we want to make sure that people have that flexibility to, um, of course, with proper planning with your manager sure. and things of that nature. And, of course, you log it in the HR system. But if you need to take time off to take care of your health, your family, if you want to go on a trip, with proper planning, we support that. And if you hire the right people, they're not going to abuse that. A hundred percent. So speaking of time off, is there anything that you enjoy doing outside of work that, you know, for fun or a hobby or anything that, that you know, you just do for fun? Yeah. I mean, I, I love to, you know, I love to spend time with the children at their different activities. My daughter's dance, my son's tennis and football. Of course, go out to dinner with my wife uh, and, and our friends and family. Um, I, I do CrossFit um, in the mornings um, at this place called A50 CrossFit, which is great. I've got a Peloton, and then um, I do some tennis. Um, and, and really, one of the things I love to do also is to keep up with my friends from high school. I mentioned earlier that we talk pretty much every day via chat and via email. And just to see what they're doing in, in their lives and with their families. I mean, I left Miami at the age of 18. I haven't been back right? Full time. Mm -hmm. But they're like my brothers. So, you know, catching up with them is, is great. Um, but yeah, you know, Dave, it's hard, you know, sometimes on a Saturday or Sunday, it's hard for me not to think about, as I mentioned, the 80 families that are associated with Rubos. You know, I care about every single one of them. Um, I have a spreadsheet of all of their children's names and what they do. And we actually just started a campaign called Kids Connection, which is going to be really exciting. Hopefully I'll be able to share that soon, some information on that. But you know, so it's hard on a Saturday or Sunday to disconnect, but I also know, based on your previous question, it's important to do that because mm. um, Eddie, Eddie does no good if he's tired on a Monday morning and, you know, the show must go on. So, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Two last questions. All right. Eddie, looking back, what is the one thing or person 
that you would say most changed the trajectory of your life to this point? My mother. Uh, my mother, um, Christina Lumiere, uh, a very strong person. Um, she obviously had many challenges uh, coming from Cuba. Um, and she raised a bunch of children. She was always there for me. Like that example I said in 10th grade when I didn't want to go to class the next day to take a biology test. Mm. And, you know, she sat me down and her Cuban way told me, suck it up and you're going to go. And I probably didn't like to hear that then. But now as a, you know, as a 41-year-old, I am forever grateful for what my mother and really all of my parents have done uh, for me. And I'm hopeful that I can do that or more with, with my children. So. Hmm. Right. The podcast is named How I Got Here. And we've talked about how you've come to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in the next three to five years? That's a great question. Um, I, I hope that our team at Ruvos has been able to contribute to the modernization of public health technology. I think it's, it's such an important topic. It's honestly a national security topic. Uh, it's one that, you know, we have, this is our Super Bowl. This is our opportunity to help all of the states improve their public health infrastructure. Once in a lifetime opportunity. So I hopefully a few years from now we can look back and say they're using amazing modern technology. The workforce is trained. The salaries are you know are are driven by the market, and um, so that's when it comes to Ruvos. Um, and then for me, I would love to explore other ways where I can help. You know the community around topics like education. Um, and, and, and topics around, you know, minorities. Um, I, you know, going back to the Jesuit, the Jesuit experience that I experienced and, and the stories that my family shared with me when they came from Cuba, there are other folks that are experiencing similar things. And if I can help, I will. So, um, I'll be here at your podcast in three to five years and I'll give you an update. That would be great. <laughs> That was Eddie Gonzalez Lumiere. And for all you kids out there, Eddie provides a good reminder that listening to your mom is always a good idea. You may just grow up to be a CEO someday. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com. <laughs>